Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. You may be seated. And as you are, either turn in the bulletin to page 14 or in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. You may not be aware of this, but preachers bank time. And the last time that I preached, I was short. And so I'm tacking that on at the end of today's. You, you understand, I get the privilege of doing that. And so be prepared today. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up, uh, taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ is ascended. I, I don't know your knowledge of late 20th century theologians, but one of the, well, probably not one of the best, probably one of the worst, but, but one of them by the name of Tom Petty said this, the, the waiting is the hardest part, 
Every day you see one more card. You take it on faith. You take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. Maybe not a theologian, but he spoke truth, didn't he? You know from your own experience that waiting is hard. If you're a child, you know that that 365-day period between your birthdays, it's hard. That 365-day between your uh, Christmas period is, is hard. You don't like to wait. As a matter of fact, you begin racking up a mental tally of all the things that you want, or at least my children do. They have lists and lists for both birthdays and Christmas, and they, they cannot wait. Adults, you wait too, and you know this. Now, the waiting's not as exciting when you get old, children, so don't wish your life away. But when you get older, you wait, don't you? You wait for test results. That's not the fun ones, but you wait, and it's hard because you want to know. You wait for vacation, don't you? You just count down until that day. You, you can just break away and, and the clock will not bind you. You'll be free unless you have kids and it's not vacation, it's a trip. But, but you wait. You wait and it's hard to wait. But the Christian faith is waiting. Two big weights in all of the Christian faith. You know the first one. It's at the very beginning of the Bible after they've fallen. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord comes to them and He comes with a, with a curse and a blessed promise. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed and He will crush your head and you will bruise His heel. And they were excited, but they had to wait. How long between the promise and the coming Redeemer? And that's the first wait. And now we are at the second one. The next big wait in Christian theology. The first one was the incarnation. I'm going to leave you hanging. I know you already know it. For the second one. But imagine here in Acts chapter 1 being those disciples. Imagine having, as you see, as you heard read in John, having believed that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will deliver God's people. And then before your very eyes, he's crucified. How horrible. But then he's raised again. How great. But he says to you, wait. And then he's taken out of your sight. Can you imagine being those disciples? Can you, can you imagine waiting for the big push of Christ's kingdom? Here he is. He's been raised from the dead. And surely that was big enough. And so he's here teaching you, talking to you, telling you about the kingdom. And you are just ready for him to say, all right, fellas, let's go and take over the world. And he, he says, okay, wait for the Spirit 
And then he just rises up. And you're left kind of dumbfounded until a couple of angels come over and go, what you looking at, fellas? And they say, why are you standing here? He's told you what to do. Go and wait. That's what you get right here. You get the beginning of the next big wait of Christian theology. And so in Acts chapter 1, as we consider this, this passage, these 11 verses, we're going to see that, that Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom is, is not one that expands like they do. It's not one in nature like theirs. No, no, his kingdom expands and its nature is different than every other kingdom and it's over all the world. And that's why the ascension's important. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about it in three points this morning. We're going to talk about the discussion of Christ's kingdom. That's what you get in verses 1 through 5. Luke is trying to condense a lot and trying to give us some information there. So the discussion of Christ's kingdom. And then you'll see the question about Christ's kingdom in verse 6. And then the nature of Christ's kingdom in verses 6 through 11. The discussion, the question, and the nature all of Christ's kingdom. So what do we learn as we look at these first five verses, it seems, it seems like Luke is jumping right into the middle of something. He's writing to this guy, Theophilus. And if that's what you think as you read that, you're right. He is. You can look at Acts sort of like Luke volume 2. right? That's, that's what he's doing. He's jumping in. He's writing again to Theophilus. Uh, and he's going to tell him about Jesus. And he begins with this discussion of who Jesus is and what he's doing for 40 days after his resurrection and until his ascension. And so as we look at this, what Luke wants you to see and understand is he begins this book, he begins it by discussing the kingdom of God. And as a matter of fact, when you turn over to the last chapter, what you see of Paul is that Luke talks about Paul and he says he was there discussing the kingdom of God for two years. Luke wants you to understand that this, this book of Acts is about the kingdom and what he wants you to understand as we look at this text is that Jesus is the one who is acting as resurrected king in his kingdom. Now, if you've got your Bible and you have a little title at the chapter or the start of the book, it probably says something like this, the Acts of the Apostles. But that's not really what's happening here. What's really happening is that Christ is, or Luke is demonstrating that Christ is over his kingdom and will always be over his kingdom. And what's going to follow is actually the acts of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit in his people to further his kingdom. And so then you understand that in the, in the first book, he began to deal with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now... He's going to continue telling you that. All that Jesus is doing 
and is teaching. And what does he do? He sets it up by demonstrating to you, first of all, in this discussion, that Jesus is king. Look at verse 2 and, and verse 4. Christ is king. Until the day he was taken up, after he had given them commands, verse 4, he gives them orders. He's authoritative. Christ is the king in his kingdom. There is no other head over Christ's kingdom. He alone is the king. As a matter of fact, our form of government, as boring as the title may sound, gives us something glorious to hold on to when we think about Christ and his kingdom. In the form of government that we have, it says this, Jesus Christ has been granted authority over all people and all rule by the Father. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the only head, and, or excuse me, the only king over all authority and the only head of the church. Never let there be a question in your mind in, in our day, even now, that Christ has ascended. Let there be no question in your mind that Christ is the head of the church and the king of all nations. He rules over all. We need to settle that before we understand Acts, before we understand Romans, before we understand 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. You need to settle in your mind that Christ is at work because he's king. And so what is he doing as king in that time? Well, he's acting as a prophet, isn't he? You see that in verse 3. He, he, after his suffering, he presents himself alive to them by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days, and here it is, speaking about the kingdom of God. What do you suppose he was saying? Well, you already know, because Luke's already told you in volume 1. In volume 1 of Luke, in chapter 24, there are a couple of disciples walking on the road. It's called the road to Emmaus. And, and there, Jesus meets up with them. He's disguised from them. And he is beginning to tell them something. And he tells them what? You know the text. He tells them, beginning with Moses and the prophets, all things concerning himself. And then a little later, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, all of the Old Testament is pointing to him. So for 40 days, the king is telling his disciples, this is what the kingdom is about. This is who, is it, about, who it is about. It's about me. It's about my reign. It's that I have come to fulfill the promises of God. And so... In this glorious way, we understand this discussion of Christ's kingdom. That he is the king. He is its prophet. And as we heard in John 17, he's its priest. He's praying for us. And you say, well, that's all well and good for them. He's there telling about it. But now, we don't see him. And if that's your thought... Well, you're in, I don't want to say bad company because they are the apostles, but, but you're, in, you're in good company because they're the apostles because you get to their question, don't you? 
Jesus has spent 40 days, not just 40 days, three years before that, declaring to them all that is, well, in him and in the kingdom. And you get to chapter 1 and verse 6 after he tells them to wait, the Spirit's coming. And you just know if this is the first time you've read this in your heart of hearts, they're going to come back with something like Jesus. This is wonderful. We, we now get it. We see. We know what you've been planning. And Lord, it is magnificent beyond our understanding. But that's not what they do, is it? What do they do? Now that leads us to the question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I've only been a parent for eight years. And I thought before I had children that I would be the, the most wonderful, patient, gentle, loving father who never loses his temper, who never rolls his eyes. Children, don't roll your eyes. Your parents can, but don't roll your eyes. Who never smacks his lips and goes, oh. And if anybody has a right to do that, it's the Lord Jesus with these men. It's, it's the Lord as he has been investing so much time in them. And, and they're still confused. And ultimately their question is a question about the nature of His kingdom. And up until the last minute, they were still thinking that the kingdom of God was going to be met in terms of some geopolitical entity. And Christ has been saying to them, listen to me, fellas, the, the kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's the kingdom of my Father. It's my kingdom. And I am going to rule it throughout all the world. Don't think of it in a geopolitical way. Just understand that I am the king. And they said, okay, so what's that going to look like here and now? And Jesus, instead of doing what I would do, is patient. Because he understands, as long as he's present, that they're not going to resist. They're not going to resist seeking the glory of a kingdom here and now. They're not going to resist... Uh, seeking the, the kingdom in a, in a political, in a geospatial way. And in one sense, Christ is right there, and, and they're right, because where, where a king is, there's the substance of the kingdom. That's why Jesus must be taken up. And so instead of lambasting them and setting them on blast, he explains to them in two ways the nature of his kingdom. He does it first with some words. You, you've seen those already. And then by his ascension. By his ascension. And so what's the nature of Christ's kingdom? They couldn't seem to grasp it, that, that his kingdom is otherworldly. But Jesus has already told them twice in this text alone that his kingdom is spiritual. Verse 5. 
For John, you, you heard me say, you heard me say it to you. John will baptize with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They were saying, Lord, we're ready. Remember, remember that's already failed with them. Lord, even if all others desert you, I won't desert you. I won't fail you. I won't turn away. As a matter of fact, here's a sword. Let me cut off Malchus' ear. And you've seen the trouble with a this-worldly mindset of another worldly kingdom. And so now, now, now he's trying to drive it home to them that that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not by might. It's not by power. It is a spiritual kingdom. And so the power of the kingdom is the Holy Spirit. It's not in political savvy. Peter didn't have that. He lopped off the servant's ear. It's not a very savvy move. No, it's not in political savvy. It's not in rhetorical power. No, no, it's not in that. It's not in courage because they would fear and tremble. And yet God would work. No, no, there's nothing accomplished in Christ's kingdom that is not accomplished by the Spirit. It's not by our own motivation. It's not by our own abilities. It's not by our own skill set or persuasiveness. No, it's all by the powerful working of Christ through His Spirit. Perhaps at work you've got someone that just won't leave you alone. They are... They are a new atheist. That's a technical term. The, they are some of the new atheists. They are the, the militant variety. And they come at you every time that they have opportunity with questions. And they, they want to pontificate. And they want to put your faith down. And you, you just know that you can't go at it toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. Because you don't have all the time that they do to, to research on YouTube and on the internet. You don't have their latest argument and you, you don't know where to turn. And here's what Jesus says to you. Stop relying on you. We're going to talk next week about Pentecost and the Spirit is going to come in a way that is glorious. And, and the Spirit that comes is the same Spirit who is in us when we are united to Christ and He pushes us to Jesus. But He says, stop relying on you Rely on spiritual things. What are those spiritual things? Well, he just spent 40 days telling them about the kingdom. All you have to do, young people, children, when they press into you, you just tell them about Jesus and his word. You don't have to give them some resounding argument. The spirit works. He is the one who will accomplish it. It doesn't matter how savvy you are. He'll do it. You hold to Him. And so the power is not in your persuasiveness. It's not in a perfect outward life. How many times have you botched it? You've, you, you have made it known that you are a Christian and you are, you are a lover of Christ and yet your friends, your co-workers have seen you sin. They know it. 
As a matter of fact, you are the one that they say, oh, I won't go to church. There are too many hypocrites there. It's not in your perfect life. You can say, listen, I don't have a perfect faith nor a perfect walk, but I, I have a perfect Savior who's over all, and this is what He says. Don't believe me because of me. Believe me because of who He is. And so the power of the kingdom is not in you. So how does it go forward then? Well, if you ask Peter before the before the resurrection, he would have had sword in hand, right? Lord, you can't go to the cross. Never will I let you do this. Get behind me, Satan. What is the power of the kingdom? It's spiritual. What is the advancement of the kingdom? It's also spiritual. There's a mess made of the church when it tries to take over the world through the world's means. Just read church history. But when the church understands her mission to be to go forward with the gospel and the glorious good news and understand that the sword that we bear is actually just paper and leather, well, the Spirit works. You go forward and you declare who He is. It doesn't go forward by sword, but by witness. Didn't it say that, that there? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, so there you have it. The kingdom's power, the kingdom's advance, and the kingdom's realm. What's the limitation on Christ's kingdom? He's overall zero. His kingdom will advance throughout all of this world, which is why he doesn't say stay in Jerusalem always. It's not a geopolitical, geospatial entity. His kingdom is over all the earth. That's why, that's why he tells them to go into all the world. He rules over all the earth. And this is the big way in which he shows it. Verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. How does that show it? Well, because if Christ were here, he had already said to his disciples, look, it's better for me to go because if I go, the Spirit comes and then the full manifestation of my kingdom will be seen for now. If, if Christ is ascended, then you won't tie it to the location where your eyes meet him you'll understand that He's been lifted up over all the earth because that's exactly where His throne room is. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool. He is reigning now in heaven and it is to show the spiritual nature of His kingdom that He is over all of the earth and it assures us, it assures us of the nature of His kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. So why did he ascend? It's to show that he is untouchable. That he can't be conquered by some king. Right? Just a hundred years ago, there was a man who, well, he about took over all the earth. 
And before that, in the 1800s, there was a man who about took over all the earth. And before that, do you understand? They are taking on earthly kingdoms. But Christ, who came once and put himself into the hands of sinful men, he was raised from the dead so that he might live and be raised above them, never in their hands again, always to rule over them until his enemies are put under his feet. And that's where we are. I told you there are two big weights in the kingdom of Christ. The first one was the waiting for the Messiah to come that first time of his incarnation. And now he has ascended. And here we are right in the middle. Right in the middle of that second one. So what do we do? Well, we do the same thing they did in that first waiting. With the eye of faith, we look beyond. We look beyond what we see, and we know that because He's come that first time, all His promises are sure, and He will come a second time. So we interpret all things in light of His promises being sure. My body's breaking down. I wake up groaning and in pain most mornings, and, and from what I'm told, it only gets worse. And by the sight of your eyes, it doesn't seem like this glorious redemption has been accomplished yet. But Jesus himself, or Paul, Jesus through Paul would say, but those are but the birth pains. That's the groaning of all creation for the revelation of the sons of God. And so we wait. We wait and we witness. Just like they did. How do we witness? Well, we witness in various ways. They witnessed in various ways. They, they proclaimed Him. They gave His promises. The Christian faith has always been evangelistic. So that's the first way that we witness. We declare His name to those outside of our presence. And the second way that we witness is going to be observed in just a moment. Right? We come to this table just as they would come to the temple. We come to this table understanding that there's no more blood because Christ's blood has been shed. We come to this table and we say to a watching world, this world isn't all there is. This bread isn't just bread. This wine isn't only wine. It is that which points us to and causes us to feed on Christ by faith. And we witness we witness to them His death until He comes. So how do we wait? Because waiting is the hardest part. Well, we do it together in a prayerful hope. You're not going to be very patient. You're not going to be very hopeful if you're not a praying people. And so now, what do we do until Christ returns? Well, we, we advance His kingdom spiritually. We wait in prayer. And we witness by the word and sacrament. Because the waiting really is the hardest part. I hope, 
I hope that for you, your heart's growing, groaning and longing is even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. For then your wait will be over. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, give us hearts that wait in faith. Hearts that wait longingly, expectantly on Jesus. Hearts that know that because that first waiting was met in a glorious Redeemer, the second waiting will be met when our triumphant King returns and we bow our knees before Him. Do this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.